Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Peter. Hi, thank you. I'm Peter, compulsive overeater. Can you hear me, Lucy? Okay, great. Hi, everybody. Oh, congratulations uh, to the two birthday folks and the uh, chip takers. It's really amazing. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm sort of hold off. Uh, it, those surfboards in the back are not mine. I'm not a surfer. This is my son's room. He's out. He's in college. So it's the only spare room with the air conditioning on and it being really hot. It's very loud around the house. So this is the one quiet place I think I can do my, uh, my meeting here today. So um, I'm glad to be here. Um, if you're new, you're checking out OA, um, you're wondering if this is a solution, and then you look around the Zoom and no one, they don't, I don't, they, they all seem different, you know. That, uh, all I can say is, uh, when I walked into the rooms, there's absolutely no reason for me to still be here. Um, I first started coming to meetings 37 years ago. And with the exception of maybe a six uh, year period of time, um, I've come to meetings on a weekly basis. And um, I have 14 years of abstinence. I will have 15 if I make it to Halloween. That's my traditional date. Uh, it's the second time I had 14 years before, and I never dreamed that I would leave OA. I remember taking my 14-year chip. It was at Serenity Sunday. I loved it. It was fantastic. I felt so much at peace. I really feel like I was home. And then a year later, I just drifted away from meetings. And at some point in there, I lost my abstinence. Uh, when I came back, uh, that was probably 1997, 98, somewhere around there. 2004 or so when I started coming, 2005 when I started coming back to meetings, someone said, well, are you still abstinent? I go, well, I, I put on 85 pounds. I, I don't think I can, <laughs> I don't think there's abstinence in there. So it was time to start over. Um, when I came in, I was 18. I was straight, uh, I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was a bunch of middle-aged housewives of which I'm probably older than all of them now than uh, when I walked into the room. Uh, you know, at 18, 22 is middle-aged. So, uh, you know, there was nothing that they had that I wanted. And, but I knew I had a problem. I came in very thin. So today, well, I'll get into that. I had just lost a ton of weight and I knew I was like that bungee cord of weight loss. It just hit that bottom and I knew it was gonna snap back up and I had to stop that from happening for the umpteenth time. So I didn't know what to do. Family members had gone to OA. My mother and father both divorced. We're going to OA separately. Uh, and they both said to me, you know, you've got a problem. You're a compulsive overeater. You, you, you need this OA. 
you know how that goes over with an 18 year old. So um, I checked out a meeting. I was like, mm, okay. Uh, I checked out another meeting and they were talking about their feelings, why they ate. And at 18, you don't have an emotional vocabulary. Um, I could not express how I felt, but I could immediately recognize that when I heard everyone else in the room sharing. It was very clear to me they knew exactly what the problem was. They were giving voice to, to, to feelings that I, I could not even give voice to, but I recognized it as soon as I heard it. And from that moment on, I knew this was the place. Um, and, you know, fast forward to today, um, why am I still here? Okay, yeah, you came in, you didn't want to gain the weight back, you did it, you got to went through life. Why, why am I still here after 37 years? And I think part of the reason I'm still here is there, I have yet to meet anybody in 37 years, and I've gone to meetings in three different countries, I've lived in three different countries. I've yet to meet someone who has left the program and their life got better. I'm yet, I, I've yet to meet that person. And I probably sponsored well over 150 people too during that time. Um, so I know what is here is better than not having a way in my life. And so the thing that I look at today, and especially what all of us have been living through in the past six months, our lives have all changed radically. And, you know, for me, it's been extremely emotionally stressful, but all the tools of the program that I've been working on for years have suddenly come into play. And it didn't mean that I got through this smoothly. It didn't mean that I didn't feel super depressed or angry or, or confused or any of those other things. I had all of that. But what I had was something that OA taught me very early on, a meaningful daily routine that gets my spiritual center in place. I have a morning meditation. I have a food plan. What I've learned today is so much of the program is about prepare and execute. So I bought the food a couple days before to have an abstinent meal at breakfast time. I didn't have to look around and say, oh, my, I, don't, oh, I don't have anything. So I could have an abstinent meal. I could talk to people in the program. I read just for today. Um, and then I can begin my day. Uh, for me, abstinence also includes exercise. That's been a huge part of this staying sane for me. Um, and so that, to, all of those tools came into play to keep me sane during the last six months. And I've been able to get through this um, incredibly intact, uh, not perfectly, but incredibly intact. And I really all that, oh, I, all of it to OA. Um, you know, today I'm 180 pounds. I, I weighed my, 188 weighed myself uh, every first of the month, September 1st. I was 193 February 1st. So I've actually lost weight during COVID, uh, which is kind of amazing. And, um, but I'm the exact same weight I was in 2015. I haven't changed at all. I've gone up a little bit over the years, uh, but as you know, my sponsor says, don't invest a lot into that number. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I understand what he means now. I am the same weight as I was five years ago. All the clothes look different, they don't fit. Something, uh, I'm, I'll be 56 soon. Something shifts once you hit 50. 
I don't know what, but the number on the scale doesn't mean anything because some of the clothes are tighter, some of the clothes are looser in other areas. So um, what I have to do is remember, do I have a food plan? Do I have a sponsor? Do I check with my sponsor? Am I doing everything that I can to do for my, do today for my recovery? And have I also prepared? So much of the program, when we look at it in terms of the steps and working it, is this preparation and execution. If, you know, it's like chopping the vegetables. You know, in the beginning, I chopped a lot of vegetables. Well, I had to prepare those vegetables to make an abstinent, uh, abstinent meal. I got sober and also abstinent in Paris, France. So anyone, if there's like a hard place to get abstinent, I did it in Paris, no sugar. And what I discovered was prepare an execution, go to the markets, get the food I need. That way I'm not wandering out you know, in the middle of the day or the evening looking for something. And then the only thing open is something that has nothing that I can eat absently. So it is, um, you know, this preparation and execution, it also shows up in the steps, you know, became willing to turn my will, life, will and life over to the care of a higher power. Preparing. Then in the, in the third step, I do that. I make an inventory in the fourth step. I share it in the fifth step making a list of those character defects, then giving them away, prepare and execution. Made a list of people I had harmed, prepare, then made amends where, you know, possible, where I wouldn't harm them, execution. The program is all about preparation and execution. To me, that's, I have to keep it very, very simple today. I have to keep the philosophy very, very simple. So for me, it's about preparation and execution. I have two children, one's now in college, uh, wife, none of them, well, I think maybe someone may, uh, one of my daughters may have an issue with um, compulsive overeating, but they don't have any issues. There's sugar around the house. They're baking stuff. There's completely non-abstinent stuff all the time. And I used to get very upset saying, you know, don't you understand? Now in those six years when I was out, I just say, fine, I'm going to eat everything. Then they learn to hide it. And then I, uh, when I got abstinent, my son was probably three and my daughter had yet to be born. Uh, the great thing about having little babies or little children in the house is that they're literal. So and when I got abstinent again, I'm like, daddy can't have sugar. Daddy can't have those things. Daddy can only have this. So when anyone would come close, bringing something over that was dessert, they'd be like, no, he can't have it. That'll kill him. Keep it away. You know, it was uh, very funny, but also very, very cute. They took it very literally. So for a long time, it was great to have them around because nothing would get past them at all. And so um, they're like, once someone gave me something that was sugar-free, and they, they look at it like, uh, that doesn't look sugar-free to me. You know, no, you can't have that. Uh, so it's really fantastic to have little kids, but all that stuff would be in the house for them. It's fine. It's been removed. The, the obsession has been removed. So that stuff is here all the time. And also what I've had to learn is I can't rely on everyone else in the family to get what I need to, to stay abstinent. Sometimes I got to go to the grocery store and make sure I have everything that I need. I pretty much eat most anything. I don't have sugar. And about a year ago, I gave up white flour and bread. 
And I had a long discussion with my sponsor about that. And I was like, well, so he said, tell you what, let's do this just for today. No white flour, no bread. Um, and if you run into a situation where you want to have it or it's going to be served, call me. Just tell me I'm going to have X, Y, and Z. Okay. So in fact, I did that today. Uh, we're having stuff brought over. Some of it is uh, white flour. And he's like, okay. I've probably called him five or six times in the last year. So having those things, so again, the obsession has been pretty much removed from that. If five or six times in a year, at the times that I, I feel the need, you know, when I'm calling up, and usually it's something where someone's, I'm going somewhere and I'm not in full control. Um, I don't crave that anymore. I can go through life fairly normally today. Uh, and when I got absent in Paris, a lot of, you know, back in the U.S., gray sheet was going on, weighing and measuring. Um, you don't weigh and measure in France. This does not, mm -mm. no. You come into a restaurant, you're eating what we give you. You want what you, you want something done a special way? Go home. You know, that's their attitude on things. They're like, well, can I get this with it? No, go. So, uh, you learn to roll with the punches, or at least I did when I was living overseas if I wanted to go to a restaurant. So it made it flexible, but that certainly didn't open the barn door to go crazy. And so I really began to learn, okay, am I honest with myself here? Am I honest uh, about food? And I'd say, you know, to people, look, I can't, you know, don't have sugar. It made it easy to also say, I don't drink. And they look at me like, really? Okay. But as long as I kept being consistent, then after a while, they stopped asking. They didn't get it. And the great, great thing was I could just say, well, I'm American. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You guys are weird. I can't, you know, it's harder here. Uh, in LA, it's fairly easy today. Um, so from that standpoint, it's all about preparation and execution. And, you know, the other thing too is preparing my mindset. I think that that is something that I've had a struggle with in a way. My mind is out to get me. And, and that's what was a very, very popular mode of thought for a long time. Um, you know, I came at 18. I'm 55, 56 years of age. I can tell you something. I would not have the serenity that I have today at 18. I don't care how many years of recovery I have. The hormones, life experience, there's just, you know, someone's like, well, I want what you have. I'm like, okay, you're not going to get it. If you're 18 or 19, life is just going to be tumultuous because that's the way it is at that stage. This is my own experience. And, uh, but if I start working the steps and working a spiritual discipline, I have a wonderful opportunity to go through things and learn from my experiences. Um, you know, I, I got into a situation where I volunteered to do something and it has turned into a nightmare. And, you know, I volunteered for a three-year term for this nonprofit back June 1. I'm already trying to figure out how to get out of it. I'm not going to get out of it. Uh, it's just a, not a great situation, which I knew. And I figured, oh, I can go in and help fix that. Nope. Um, so I'm still committed to it. But instead of thinking, oh, you know, all right, you're a real idiot beating myself up and this, that, the other. Or what's wrong with these people? Can't they see that I'm volunteering my time and I'm doing all this and they should be grateful. And my sponsor's like, 
why are you expecting them to act in a certain way? Let go of how they're supposed to act. Release that. And that was extremely helpful. The other thing that I had to come to terms with is there's a very definite reason I've been put into this situation. And what I've discovered in other past tough situations that I've been put in in my life is my first mode is to think, okay, this is really unfair. Poor me. Why am I having to go through this? I have a lot to deal with already. Why this? Now, it's about, okay, there's, some, there's a lesson here. Why am I going through this? I may not find out what that lesson is for years to come, but this is, experience is going to give me some tools that is going to help me in some fashion. I don't know how. So I need to keep my eyes open. I need to be alert, and I need to be present and open for whatever happens. And so that's now that I'm changing my approach and my internal narrative about it, I'm becoming much more comfortable talking about it. About 15, yeah, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, I got sued by, you know, my family and it was really terrible and it was a very public thing, involved my employer and it was awful. That's just, there's just no two ways to put it. I kept thinking, why am I going through this? Why am I going through this? And it was a lot of uh, court battles and animosity. It ended, everything worked out to my favor, uh, which means, you know, I just get to pay a lot of money to lawyers. Um, and then another legal incident came up uh, at my work. And all of a sudden I was pulled into this and it had nothing really to do with me. It had to do with an ex-partner, someone I had partnered up with. And then we got into a huge fight, broke up our partnership. I was very resentful. I was writing tons of 10 steps against her. And, you know, finally, as I was calling my sponsor one more time, I go, I can't do another 10 step. I just have to end this. I have to end this partnership. And he goes, yeah. I said, well, why didn't you tell me that before? And he goes, you need to do, do enough 10 steps to work through it, to come to that point and the realization that this, you got to get out. Thank God he allowed me to have the dignity of my experience to come to that, come to that place. But all those 10 steps paid off because she ended up getting into a lawsuit and for medical, was in the hospital. I had to show up. I had to defend her on something I had nothing to deal with. Someone I had huge resentments for. If I hadn't done all those 10 steps, I couldn't have shown up. And my experience in that past lawsuit prepared me perfectly for this one. And so it was really, so all of that bad experience really came in in an amazing way. And it just opened so many doors. And so now when a situation happens, I don't think, okay, why is this happening to me? I go, okay, this is happening. What am I supposed to learn here? There's something, there's something here. So it's a change. And, and so much of life is about what's my internal narrative. People think about thinking positive thoughts, affirmations, that's all part of the same thing. But with affirmations, it was always about something good happening to me. And, 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 and changing the narrative is really taking a look at maybe as I do these 10 steps, what I learned in the 10th step is my point of view is not necessarily the correct one. My memory is not necessarily the correct one. But by doing 10 steps, I get to see another point of view and another way to look at it. And maybe that's going to change my past. And it does. 
you know, I thought for a very long time I suffered from depression. I've taken medicine, I've seen psychiatrists. What I came to discover is I really, there was some depression in there, no question. But what I really suffered from was self-pity. And there's a big difference. They don't have medication for self-pity. Well, they do, it's called chocolate. But you know, the, the, the medicine out there is uh, mostly for depression. And when I, begin, when I had that realization, it opened up so many doors for me. And I began to see how I walked around with this idea of, oh, this is happening to me and being a victim and having that self-pity. It's a fallback. I didn't deserve love, so I'll, put, I'll, I'll take self-pity. That's good enough. And so I had to work on changing that narrative. And it changed how I interacted with people. It changed how I looked at my life. It changed how I looked at situations and relationships. Um, you know, like many of us, we had tortured, I had tortured relationships with my family. I'm not on speaking terms with my brother. Uh, my mother and uh, I have had a very tough situation all the way through growing up as an adult. She's a very tough person to deal with. You know, today I'm caring for her. She's in a nursing home. Um, I'm basically the only person, her husband is with her. He's, they both have Alzheimer's. He's really got it quite bad. I'm the only person in contact with her and the family. And, you know, some of the nurses say, well, what about your other brothers? And I go, you know, she was not a very nice person to anybody. You know, I show up, uh, I, I, I made a promise to show up. We have a great relationship. Uh, you know, I could look at that and go, oh, she has Alzheimer's. This is terrible. This is awful. She's very nice with Alzheimer's. We get along much better. And so I look at the positive aspects and go, our relationship is much better because she's not sitting there looking for an enemy and arguing. And what about this? What about that? We have very nice, short, but very, very nice conversations. I just did a Zoom call with her the other day because we can't visit uh, the, the, the nursing home right now. And I also did a ton of 10 steps. I did a lot of cleaning up. You know, my father died very suddenly about 18 years ago. I get the phone call, he's had a heart attack. I mean, out of the blue. And, you know, I flew across country, went to see him, got to see him just before he died. I was grief stricken, but there was nothing I had to say. There was nothing unsaid. There was no regret. There was no, I wish, I wish we, I, you know, we patched things up. It, we didn't have that. We had a wonderful relationship. And that is all due to OA. That's all due to working the steps, you know, right, you know, doing the inventory, doing the 10th step, making living amends, uh, and then continuing, um, you know, to be of service wherever possible. So, you know, today, all of this keeps working. And because of that, I stay in a way because I need to hear the message. I forget the message. I need to hear the message. I need to hear the repetition. I need to work with new people because I need to see that light bulb, that aha moment where they go, oh, I get it. I get it. Or they can, you know, I'll say something and they go, you, you, you hit it right on the head. I am a compulsive overeater. It's the only way you can, I mean, you're a compulsive overeater. You just nailed everything that I'm doing and you don't even know me. And it's that, that recognition and that relationship that I get in a way that tells me, okay, I'm on the right path. I'm in the right place. I'm doing this. And so, you know, today when I get up, it's about, okay, 
it's not that I get up every day and everything's wonderful and cheery, but what's my opportunities today? What do I get? What do I get to do? Um, and, and that's how I have to approach things. Um, you know, the food plan has changed. When I came in, it was gray sheet. Uh, if you were on gray sheet, you were abstinent. If you weren't on gray sheet, you weren't abstinent. It was that simple. It was very hard to stay abstinent. Uh, and it took me about a year and a half coming to meetings to get abstinent. And uh, then when I moved to Paris, I got abstinent. Um, I also got sober. That's a whole nother deal. But I had to get a little honest with some other stuff. I can't be honest with one substance and dishonest with another substance. And, I, and it's not, and it really was about substances, not necessarily behavior. I had to put things down. And, and so once that happened, I could get abstinent and I stayed abstinent. And the reason I left the program, my belief, is I didn't have a sponsor. I went probably 10 years easy without a sponsor. I moved, I was in Paris, okay, I, I'm leaving. Moved to Washington, D.C., well, you know. It's a big group, but well, I didn't quite find a sponsor there. Then I moved to Philadelphia, Center City, Philadelphia. Great meetings there, went to a meeting every night. I didn't know anyone, so I just went to a meeting. Mm, there were no men, so yeah, okay. Come to L.A., mm, you know, kind of looking around. Well, didn't quite find a right person. You know, if you're in LAOA and you can't find a sponsor, you're not looking. That's, that's bottom line. And I was looking for me. That, that was the problem. I was looking for a straight white male making X amount of money with this kind of thing. You know, they'll understand me and this, they're going to help me run my life even better. And no, it, it, it is almost immaterial sometimes who my uh, sponsor is in terms of how their lives are similar to mine. Because, you know, what it comes down to is the disease. You know, how does the disease, how does that thinking work in my life? Sometimes I need someone to say, mm, that thinking's a little off. Maybe we want to examine that a little bit more. Um, you know, I do work with men and uh, I have a male sponsor, um, you know, just because the thinking is very similar. Um, and I think, and when I came back to program, it was, you know, uh, I need to find a sponsor and I found one at my first meeting. I didn't want to come back. I really didn't want to come back. So, but uh, I had a health scare and doctors told me, you know, you're gonna have a heart attack. You have a hundred percent chance of a heart attack, very similar to what happened to my father. And you're either gonna have it next year or in the next 20 years. Uh, but you got to lose 70 pounds. You're going to start running marathons and um, or you're going to drop that. And at the time I was in my early 30s. So I was like, OK. And I had that and, and I went in and do the cat scan, the, the scans of the heart, and everything. And, um, you know, it was amazing. He came back and said, for someone who has your condition, your cholesterol and everything else like that, you, your arteries are completely clear. This makes no sense. We can't fit. I mean, it just makes no medical sense. And I thought in my mind at that time, because I wasn't going to meetings, I wasn't abstinent. I know why it makes sense. I'd been abstinent for 14 years. I had been eating very cleanly for 14 years. And that was that moment of clarity. And I was like, yeah, away. And then whoop, went away. 
went back to binging for a while. That wasn't enough to bring me back. Uh, and so I started running marathons because the doctor told me, and then I injured myself. I lost the weight, crazy diets, and then I knew I was going to gain it all back again. And I couldn't run because I hurt my leg. And I remembered again, the only time I never had a problem was when I was in no way. So I came back to the kitchen sink, saw all the same people. It was really amazing. I thought, okay. And, and in that meeting was a guy I had sponsored in Philadelphia probably 15 years prior. I had no idea he even lived in LA. And I saw him, we connected, and I thought, okay, that's my answer. I guess I'm supposed to be here. So if you're new and you're thinking about, am I supposed to be here? Look around for the signs. But I would say, take a look at the, the differences of the people who are in OA and those that aren't. Doesn't mean their problems haven't gone away, you know, that have gone away completely, that they're all at goal weight, none of that. But are they, do they have the capacity and the tools to live life on life's terms? and get through it without getting totally unhinged. I know my compulsive overeating and addict friends can't do that without a program. So I'd say, take a look at the people in the rooms and out of the rooms. And some of the most, and, and some of the most amazing things I've seen in recovery is uh, there's a guy I saw when he came in 25 years ago, sad sack, depressed, moaning at all the meetings. I was like, whoa, okay. And I'd see him around and he got it. And I saw him about a year ago he had come back into town and this guy was radiating joy. It was stunning. This was a different person. He had joy in his life. Yes, he had lost weight. He had physical recovery. He was in OA, but he had something else. He had joy. I can't think of many other things in life um, that produce joy, but I think OA does. I think the 12 steps do. The fellowship, all of those things and combined together can help bring me joy. And um, I just hope that if you're new or not so new, stick around, look for the joy. You know, maybe it's time to get into the steps again. I don't know what it is, but the joy is here. It's just waiting for you to find it. Uh, with that, the time is 618. So I'm gonna stop there, I guess, what? One question? Okay, How do you want to do it? Thanks, Peter. <laughs> yeah, two more minutes. So yeah, if you have any questions, um, I'm going to open the chat um, to be able to message me. So if anyone wants to type a question, it looks like Michael has his hand up. Let me allow you to unmute yourself. Go ahead, Michael. Thank you so much, Peter. Um, wonderful qualification. I wanted to know if there were any, if looking back at the time when you left, if there were any early signs that you can recognize now, um, and more generally, like what do you, what's, what, what do you do when you recognize any signs or period of sort of discomfort in program? What's your action plan around that? Thank you. Yes, very definite signs. Uh, the sign was this: I started to gain weight, and I had no one to talk to. Even though I knew, went to meetings, I knew everyone, I was secretary, I didn't have that sponsor. So you know what? I'm going up two pounds a month, a pound of the month. And it slowly went up and I began to think in the back of my mind, that little thing, this doesn't work. And what had happened was I had a car accident, I had some physical disability, 
I, I was on, you know, going through rehab, I couldn't exercise, my food got a little sloppy, I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't have that one person who could look at me and go, mm, what's going on? That, very slowly, and it took about three years for that really to come to full fruition, and that's why I left. So I would say lack of sponsor, someone who would look at me and see those, those things for me. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, I really appreciate it. Um, it's now time for our seventh tradition. The LA Intergroup requests that you contribute.